We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered Welcome back to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week, we're going to be taking a look at 2001's Frailty, written by Brett Hanley and directed by Bill Paxton. Here's a clip. So, what can I do for you, Mr. Meeks? Name's Fenton Meeks. Listen, this may sound a little bit crazy, but... I know who the God's Hand Killer is. All right, I'll buy. Who? You hadn't even heard me out yet, and already you doubt me. Why is that? <laughs> because in a case like this, nobody just walks into the office and tells you who the killer is. It just doesn't happen that way. Sometimes truth defies reason, Agent Dole. Yeah? So who is it then? My brother. All right, that was a clip from 2001's Frailty. Again, written by Brent Hanley and directed by Phil Paxson. My name is Patrick Murphy. Joining me today, as always, is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? I got a quick note. I just have to say something really quick before I forget. At the end of this show, I'm going to be playing 10 minutes from the review of this movie that was done on our podcast way back on episode 181. And it's really good. It's only 10 minutes, but it's super funny. It includes Al Cretina, Simon Howell, and Mariko McDonald. So stick around. It's going to be amazing. An all-star cast there. Um, those are the oldies and goodies. All right. Also joining us today is uh, Montreal-based film critic and or film writer and journalist Matthew Hayes, uh, also film uh, studies professor at Marianopolis and Concordia. Is that correct? Did I get everything there? You got it there. No, Patrick, you must know about Concordia University, even if you live in the States, right? I, I do know about Concordia University, yes. Right. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard of Marianopolis. It's a, it's a private college. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Uh, and you have a little little bit of history here with this movie. In fact, you've interviewed Bill Paxton about this movie. Is that correct? Yeah. The one time I interviewed him was about this film. Um, of course, it was his directorial debut, his feature directorial debut. He'd done a couple of shorts. Um, and he was just really lovely and charming and he could he was full of enthusiasm about the film i i do recall um that he was pretty bummed out about um the film had gotten some great reception on the festival circuit in good buzz and i was interviewing him as it was being released obviously uh and 
he was a little bit underwhelmed with the support he was getting from the distributor. And I, I remember that that was something he was touching on. And I remember his wife sort of gently nudged him during the interview, like, maybe you're going too far <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> yes, it was actually kind of funny. And he was like, no, no, Matt's my friend. I can say what I want. <laughs> He's on our side. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the title of the movie Frailty because it didn't get a big budget and he didn't have much time to shoot the film, so he looked at it like if he made one bad decision, the whole entire project can crumble? I, you know, I don't. I actually don't know that factoid. I wouldn't be surprised at all. That's hilarious. That's a hilarious story. That's a I really think story. The original title was God's Hand, I believe, but... Um... But they did change it to frailty. I, they had said that they wanted. I read in interviews anyway. I, the truth of all of these things is always in question whenever you're talking about movie lore, history, or production. But uh, they had said that they just wanted a more ambiguous title, and then it sort of represented the nature of family. Oh, that's interesting because they didn't want that for the ending of the film. <laughs> <laughs> Al Cortina summarized this film in the best way possible. He said, God dresses up like a handyman, and while in disguise, he goes on a murdering spree using three magical weapons, an axe, a pipe, and a pair of gloves. <laughs> I mean, you got to admit, that's kind of funny. Spoilers. Um, yeah, exactly. The whole point of this premise is that you don't really know what's going on here. Bill Paxson could be crazy. He might have a tumor in his brain. Uh, he might have just lost it completely. But he has basically, uh, he comes in one late one night telling his two kids that God has told them that his job on Earth is to kill demons or destroy demons, I should say. They make a very big point of not saying kill, but destroy demons who live among, uh, live among us here on Earth. And so he brings his two kids, his uh, small boys, along with him on this <laughs> crazy killing spree. And uh, we don't really know. The audience isn't really sure. Is he actually working as an agent of God, something above who you never really see? Or is he just an insane serial killer who has justified himself with this crazy story? Um, we do find out eventually in the end, but we'll get into that maybe a little bit later. Yeah, we should warn... Listeners, if you haven't seen this movie, there are four plot twists. I, I would say four major plot twists. And so we'll try to not spoil the movie until later in the episode, but be warned. So I'm not sure what you guys... I didn't actually see this movie when it came out in theaters. Um, maybe that was part of Bill Paxson's problem with the distributor, is that uh, it didn't really get a lot of press. <laughs> I wasn't really even aware of it much when it first came out. Um I actually saw Bill Paxton's second movie, The Greatest Game Ever Played, before I ever saw Frailty, which seems weird because that's, you know, a much, I don't know, I don't want to say milk toast. It's it's actually a really good movie and I like it a lot, but I, I also like golf. Um, but it's just a very, very different movie. It's a very nice, wholesome family movie, whereas Frailty is, is you know, a little grimmer. It's a Southern Gothic horror film. You know, on paper... This movie is a movie I should really hate. And one of the reasons is because of the plot twist. I feel like the movie cheats, which we'll talk about later in the in the episode. But I actually really like the movie. And I think I like it really because of the performances from the entire cast, specifically Paxton. Because usually in horror films, when it deals with a fanatic, like a religious fanatic, someone who just starts talking about, like, God told me to, that performance... And that character is usually played over the top. And in this movie, 
he comes across as someone who really cares about not only his sons, but people in general. He seems like a really nice guy. I mean, yeah, he's going around killing people. But as you said, Patrick, in his head, he's destroying monsters. He's not killing people. And so I really like his performance. There's a lot of restraint on this film. And I think that's why, for me, it works, despite the fact that there is one twist that I'm not happy about. But we'll talk about it later. Uh, I think that clearly one of the things that is really great about this film, and there's a lot to commend it, um, is that he has, as an actor himself, he has a great respect for performance. And you can feel that throughout the film. Um, He's got a great cast, Matthew McConaughey and Powers Booth in particular, but also the the young actors. It's hard to pull that off for young people. And Bill Paxton gathers that together. And I think that that's part of what he brought to the table as a director was he's, you know, has all this experience, this wealth of experience as an actor. And he's a great actor. Yeah, and I think he definitely gets some great performances out of those kids. Uh, Matt O'Leary as the younger Fenton, um, especially, does a fantastic job. And this script is structured in an odd way, which, again, it's hard not to, to talk about that twist because so much is based on it. But you're basically seeing this movie through the eyes of young Fenton. Um, sort of, but that's the perspective that you're, you're identifying with. Um, that that actor carries a lot of this, does a fantastic job at sort of being that torn emotional uh, center and the person that the audience can identify with as thinking like, this is all crazy. And as a, his, his world sort of slowly spirals out of control into madness. Yeah. Um, Interviewing him at the time, this, one of the struggles was talking about the film because we, you know, we both didn't want to give things away. Um, I think it's I think it's a very clever screenplay, right? Mm-hmm. And it's an odd odd one, just from how how it's approached. Usually, you think you have a pretty solid understand or a solid footing, uh, you know, that you base your perspective on. And this one, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, we're not really. We're not really getting what we think we're getting. Let's put it that way. No. Is it just me or is this movie, like, does it remind you of Hitchcock and also Night of the Hunter? Like, I'm sure Night of the Hunter is clearly an influence. I'm pretty sure you can read it in an interview somewhere. But I feel like I hate always bringing up Hitchcock on the podcast, but I can't help but feel like he was trying to make what Hitchcock would have made in 2001 in terms of, like, a southern gothic horror film. The, the weird thing about this movie is, I'm all about visuals, and I really do not like the way the movie looks. It's not his framing. It's not the staging. It's not his camera choices. It's the the, the look of the film. Like It looks like it's shot on really cheap video, like digital. And maybe I'm wrong, but maybe maybe it, it was because he didn't have a big budget. And I know Bill Butler is like, you know, a really amazing cinematographer. I mean, he worked on Jaws, if I'm not mistaken, in The Conversation, two of the greatest movies ever made. But there's something about the look of the film. It just, it looks horrible. And I thought it was my DVD transfer. Because I have like the DVD that was released way back in 2001. But it's not because I watched it on Amazon as well. And the look is very grainy and dark. So I'm not entirely sure if that is what he was going for. But I think it has something to do with the quality of the camera and or the film stock or something. I never noticed the film looking shoddy before. I mean, uh, low budget, but it didn't bother me. Yeah, I don't know. I just watched this a couple nights ago. I also didn't notice that either. I, I mean, I noticed that he couldn't do a lot of setups. As far as him being more like Hitchcock, he doesn't really have the 
virtuoso, uh, you know, style aspects that Hitchcock had. And I, this movie doesn't really try to have those big, it doesn't build itself around certain suspenseful scenes um, necessarily. But if you look at just the centerpiece, which is um, the, is he a detective or the sheriff driving with Matthew McConaughey? Powers Booth, basically, he's, Matthew he's McConaughey. An, he's an FBI agent. The FBI agent and and well, things <laughs> one get, of the, one of the boys, one of the, one boys, of the boys, right? When he's older, so that centerpiece when they are driving, that is the longest scene in in the entire film because he's narrating. The, the, I mean, this is so complicated without spoiling it for listeners, but his character is narrating the story, right? So he's sort of like an unreliable narrator, which we can talk about later on. But that centerpiece, like, like when they're just driving, they're, they're clearly not driving. So I was watching the making of or the anatomy of a scene, which is on the DVD features, and they talk about how they shot that film and uh, that that scene. And you know, it required like thirty people and an entire day of shooting. It was done on the last day because Matthew McConaughey was going to go shoot another movie, so he had like twenty four hours to do this and wrap it up. And you know, he had like nine different camera angles. But that scene, the way it was shot, it reminds me of like the way Hitchcock would approach his. Like, even if it's a simple scene, like a driving sequence, right? You got the, the, it's not really a car in the background. It's it's just a guy walking around with flashlights, but it appears to be a car in the background. And the way it's framed, like the fact that there's a grid between the two men, right? Because he's in a cop car. And the camera gets closer and closer to Matthew, McCon- Matthew McConaughey throughout the film, where eventually you don't even see the grid. Like, it just, the camera basically passes, like, zooms in past the grid. So... The more he reveals about himself and the more clues the movie lays out for the audience, so you can try to figure out the not one, not two, not three, but four of the plot twists, the less we see of the grid, the less we see of the FBI agent, <clears throat> sorry, and the more we see of Matthew McConaughey's character. So things like that remind me of Hitchcock. Ah, interesting. Okay. I hadn't thought about it, and that's a very good analysis of that. I mean, when I, when I watch this film, and I, I don't know how much we can get into, <laughs> shall we just... Can we leave it to the spoiler? We keep having to step around. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's we, break I, it. It was, it was, uh, like I said, it was one of the things that were that were that was tricky for me to discuss with him because I did a lo- I did a long piece in the mirror about it. I think it was like a full page on it with with him, um, and it was tricky to discuss. But for me, this film really plays on the evil kitty movies in a, in a way. I thought about them a lot when I watched it, in particular, like. Um, you know, to the uh, the Omen, Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and even the 1956 film, The Bad Seed, a little bit. In that, in those films, the parents are having all this anxiety about what the children are up to, right? And they don't want to believe that their child is a killer. It's, it's usually what what it is. They don't want to believe this conspiracy in Rosemary's Baby, in the case of Rosemary's Baby, or they don't want to believe that their child's a killer. And there's this real tension in those films between the secular and um, the religious, right? Mm-hmm. And, I fi- and I find that really, really interesting. And the real horror of those films is that the devil actually exists because that means that God must exist. So um, this film is really interesting in that I, it was never a question for me. I thought for the, the whole film, I thought Bill Paxton is a psycho. He's just a lunatic. He's like, you know, uh, I don't know, Jerry Falwell or something. <laughs> He's just a crazy person, right, who, who, who's nuts. And the big shock, the big reveal in the end of the film is that, no, 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 actually, he he is uh, driven by angels and he is doing God's work to kill these evil people. So 
that to me is like the shocker of the film. And I think it's a very clever play on uh, films where children play a role in this, this big battle between good, good and evil. And this shocking revelation to secular film people in Hollywood, you know, coastal elites, <laughs> that God might actually exist, right? Because that's, that's the shocker in, in Rosemary's Baby. Um, uh, even Mia Farrow, when, she's, when she goes into the doctor's office at one point, she picks up Time magazine and, and the magazine covers, the famous controversial cover they did, that's, is God dead, is the question, right? Mm -hmm. So this whole stuff about, on, and even, you know, John Cassavetes, her spouse, who sells her off to the devil, he does it because he's an actor who's desperate for a role. So there's this whole, and of course, in The Exorcist, Ellen Burstyn plays a famous actress. So uh, it's all based on Shirley MacLaine. I mean, it's like really, really interesting to think about the way in which the secular versus religious is playing out in all of these movies. And I think frailty is a really interesting addition to that. Yeah, but the one difference in this movie compared to those movies, in this movie, basically God is telling him to kill people, or in this case, destroy demons. But he could have shot the ending in a way where instead of showing us the visions, for example, of the pedophile or the murderer, or I'm not entirely sure what the lady did. I think she murdered someone too. But anyways, instead of showing us the, those visual flashbacks, we could have just had something that was more of a monologue or, you know, he maybe says so-and-so was a pedophile, so-and-so was a murderer, like, look it up type thing. Like, because the, the, the thing is, is, like, when you show the visuals, like, the, 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 those those flashbacks of the crimes that those people who he killed committed, it pretty much says that this is actually what happened and there's no denying it, right? So it's not ambiguous. And I think it would have been better if it left the audience trying to figure out or left us deciding what we want to believe, right? But in this case, it pretty much spells it out. It's like, no, the dude does have visions, and God is telling him to kill these people who aren't people but demons. So you see what I'm saying here? That's that's my issue with the ending. I would have preferred him not give us the answers. You want you want ambiguity? Pretty much. I mean, in this case, yeah, it's not it's not a deal breaker. Like, I still really do like this movie. I think he pulls it off in the end. Um, but you know, like even like the you know. Four twists, right? One twist is the fact that it's really Adam and not Fenton. And we find out near the end. So basically the first flashback doesn't really happen. So the thing is, again, it's the visuals. Like, I get an unreliable narrator, like, telling the story. But when the movie itself cheats and shows us a vision or visual of a dude committing suicide, but that didn't actually happen, that's a cheat. And so for me, that's a cheap way of doing a twist. And so, so the thing about twists for me is that if a movie lives and dies on a twist, it's not a good movie. I still think this is a good movie because there's so much going on. There's so much just great performances. And I think it's the family unit. Like the fact that this movie is really about a, a family, like the dad and the two sons and their emotional journey. I think that is why it works. Like this is a movie about not one, but two serial killers. And yet there's hardly any blood or violence. Most of it is kept off screen. And when he does commit murders, we see the reactions of his sons instead of, say, the murder itself. And I like that. Yeah, I think the forming of the second serial killer is also what really struck me the second time around. Is I, he, he, of course, uh, Fenton is, since we're spoiling everything, Fenton has been revealed to also be a demon. And he is Bill Paxton's son, and Bill Paxton doesn't want, he doesn't want to believe it. And he wants to try to 
reform him, I guess, in a way, or or prove the angel wrong that his son is a demon. Yeah, I think that's like the Abraham reference from the Bible. Right, because right, remember right. Abraham, what, what's the story? He had to sacrifice his son, but instead he sacrificed like a sheep or a goat. I can't remember. He was told to sacrifice his son, and right as he was about to do it, he was stopped. And it, it was basically God testing him to see if he would do anything he was asked to do. Right, and in this um, movie, he doesn't try to necessarily kill him, but he locks him up in the basement, and the kid nearly dies. Well, he doesn't do what he's asked to do. And, and then, of course, the result of that is his own death, as, as his own son kills him um, eventually. Though not necessarily out of some sort of psychopathic serial killer <laughs> reason. At this point, the kid's reasons are, are incredibly justifiable to, uh, to the audience. Yeah, so I have to ask you guys about that. So his character is is portrayed when he's younger as someone who thinks his dad is crazy and does not want his dad to kill anyone. And so how and when does his brain sort of, like, when, when does he get the trigger to turn into a serial killer? Because throughout the whole entire film, as we see him, he doesn't seem like the kind of person that can hurt a fly. I think it's the, when his... Dad, and we'll talk about this scene later too, because uh, I, I'm going to bring it up. But when his dad locks him in the cellar, I think that's it. It was torture. I think he snaps. He had already he had been on the verge of snapping. Uh, the whole as the movie is progressing, as this idea that his dad is a, a uh, you know demon killing avenger, he is breaking down mentally over the course of this because he he can't see it. There's no logic to it, and he seems to be the voice of logic and reason throughout the movie. And this is defying all of that. And his brother's going along with it. And it's making him maybe seem like he's the crazy one. But uh, I think he snaps in, in that. It's a, it's a, essentially a torture scene. Um, and that's it. I think from then on out, he has nothing but hate uh, for everything. And I think that's where the turn is. You don't necessarily know that as the audience right away. It's easy to pick up on that when you are when you already know how Ben's going to turn out. But... Um, I think that's that's the moment where it happens. Oh, that's an, that's a very interesting analysis. Yeah, I would think that would be not a recommended parental um, activity. <laughs> 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 but okay, okay. So this movie has I say four twists because there's a twist when we learn that Adam uh, Fenton is really Adam. There's a twist, and and of course that means the like I said the opening flashback doesn't really happen because he never kills himself. That's Fenton, Adam. I'm all confused now. Anyways, then twist number two is we learn that the people that they killed are actually bad people and committed crimes, etc., etc. Twist number three means that the dad, Bill Paxton's character, and in this case, Adam, actually do see visions and they are demons. And twist number four is the FBI agent is also a killer who killed his mom. Now, I've seen this movie three times. The first time, I was so sure the FBI agent was a murderer because they kept on referencing and the mom. And like We see the picture, we see the close-up of the photo, of her photo. He mentions her again in the car. So it was like, I was like, okay, if they're going to mention the mom like three or four times... This dude killed his mom. But even re-watching the movie, like, I don't know, for the third time this week, I completely forgot that Adam was really Fenton and vice versa. I could see how you would forget that. It gets a little confusing, all these flashbacks and things. 
Yeah, and the fact that he's telling the story from Fenton's perspective. So he's almost putting thoughts into his brother's head or what he assumes his brother was going through at the time. And that's what makes this script so interesting and odd is that we, you know, we do have the unreliable narrator, but he's he's attempting to get inside the brain of his brother who eventually became a serial killer while acting as his brother and and attempting to tell this this FBI agent the story of of his family life. Uh, it's it's very odd. So you can't really be sure and re- upon rewatching this movie that what he's describing, what Fenton's going through is actually correct, that even the the logic and reason and descent into sort of darkness, we don't really know if that's if that's true, if if Fenton really was that logical of a person. Oh my god, there's a fifth twist. I just realized at the very end of the movie. When we realize that the secretary at the police station is really his secretary or receptionist. I'm not entirely sure what her job is or her job title. And he's the sheriff. Yeah, he's, I mean, there's <laughs> the, the end comes with a flurry of reveals. I mean, that, that could be like a precursor to, or prequel to True Detective if his name was Russ Cole. <laughs> <laughs> that ending does come with a, a flurry of reveals and it, and it can get kind of <laughs> overwhelming at first. Uh... <laughs> What's the deal with the gloves? Because does he use the gloves each time he touches? Because when he touches his victims, like he has to touch his victims to see if they're really demons and to look into their mind to see what the crimes were, right? So the film does a good job of emphasizing what he sees and feels with just sound design, like a brace of sound cues and frantic handheld camera work, which is great. But... Does he use the gloves in every scene? Because at the end, he doesn't have the gloves when he touches um, the FBI agent. Uh, no, but he also, if you're if you're watching, he never he's very careful to avoid all contact with him. So there's a moment where the FBI agent walks in and wants to shake hands, and instead he hands him the picture of his mother instead of shaking hands. And there's another moment where the FBI agent wants to put his hand on his head to put him inside the car after he's been you know after he's handcuffed himself. And Matthew McConaughey leans away and basically implies that he knows how to do it. Uh, so there are little moments like that to ensure that he never actually touches Powers Booth until the very end. Ah, I missed. I'll, I'll, I'm going to watch it again. I missed that bit, even though I've seen it a few times. Yeah, he's definitely. And I believe the idea behind that was not so much. I mean, obviously, they could see that person was a demon, but they were trusting it at all along anyway. Right. Because they were going off the list. But also that they would that person uh, would be revealed to or that they would be revealed to that demon. I, I think that the reason he doesn't want to touch that person is because then the demon knows who he is as well. Yeah, you're, you're, you're completely right. But that's what I mean. Like um, he doesn't really need the gloves. Like but I think the gloves are to get them out <laughs> of the public, you know, to get them back so that they can haul them around and, and actually commit these killings you know even though they're sort of masked when they're out in the open uh you know according to them that god blinds people around them and obviously there's a bit with the video camera which is pretty clever i think um they they still need to get them you know haul them around the video camera footage that's the problem with the ending because when you show the video camera footage like you're like again it's an it's it's once again and they're not leaving us the audience to we could talk about this after the break like things i would change but we have no choice but to actually believe that he is seeing demons because the movie is telling us he is to the point where when he walks into the police station god is messing with the cameras <laughs> like the security cameras like what the hell dude which so, is great yeah, I mean, look, at the end, 
this is a horror I, film. And, like, I mean, we've seen horror films that are, like, ten times sillier in terms of, like, how they end. You know what I mean? Like, when it comes to twists and stuff. So, I, I know, the thing, the thing about this movie is I know a lot of people who dislike this movie. And they dislike this movie specifically because of the ending. Like, those la- like the last, like, five minutes. The last reel. And I, I can understand why. Like, I still like the movie. But I think there was a way to end this movie that would have made it, I don't know, just a tad bit better. So you're 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 sort of uh, you think it should have been more uh, ambiguous and and more subtle, right? Is that, is that that's your main argument about the ending? Pretty much, like just in terms of are these people really demons or not? Because I get and you know what I'm not like I'm not super religious, but I grew up Catholic and you know was an altar boy and whatever. But I kind of feel like this movie is implying that or basically says that God is killing these people. Like at the end of the day, it's God's demons. work. Rick. Well, yeah. Demon. <laughs> yeah, but like, destroying, not like, killing. That's what's really interesting to me, though. About that's why I brought up those earlier films. I and mean, if you read uh, William Friedkin's memoirs, and when he gets talks about The Exorcist, you know, he and uh, and Blatty, the author, they had real conflict about um, about faith, and when they were when when he was making that film, and whether or not it was real, or whether or not it should be more ambiguous. And and when Freakin went back and did the director's cut, he was much more on William Peter Blatty's side and said, I'm, I'm much more a person of faith now, and I'm much more into the idea that the devil and God really exist. So, I, I mean, I think that's what's really interesting about these films is that they're kind of, um, like I said before, they're this secular nightmare. They're basically saying to people who don't believe in God, in your face, God exists, right? That there's the, there is this battle between good and evil, and God, and if the devil exists, then God exists, right? So that's what I think is interesting about this film is that it continues that conversation, which I hadn't heard in a while, <clears throat> especially around young people, you know, in, right. in horror. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is like, cause like they say demons, Patrick, you say demons because the screenplay says demons but we don't see demons we see just really bad people committing bad crimes so okay it's one of it's it's like a question of if someone's a pedophile or someone commits murder should you kill that person does it make you a better person type thing that is something i was going to bring up later on and i 100 percent agree i would have actually preferred that we see some evidence of uh, you know some demonic evidence instead it just seems like these might be bad people which in that case would still make it murder um which you know bill paxton is 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 very much against we don't actually see evidence that they are quote unquote demons we just see evidence of bad things that they've done well people do bad things and it doesn't make them demons and so if they're not demons what it's just a dirty harry sequel or right right (laughs) i mean i I take it on faith that they are demons (laughs) because the movie (laughs) You know, because the movie says so, and they appeared on this list, and there's all sorts of little, you know, cues that that suggest they are. But I would have liked either more confirmation that they were demons, or like Rick says, just for movie purposes, um, I would have liked less. But I still want the videotape in the end because the videotape is the one thing that can give proof proof to one side or 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 the other. Uh, you could always make the argument that the video just glitched out, or you could make the argument that the video was manipulated. And I think that that can maintain your ambiguity, but it gives it that little extra supernatural kick that I that I kind of like that this movie has. Um, 
Yeah, so either way, I would have wanted to see concrete, like, demon-proof. I would have liked to see them, like, change their faces, I don't know, become a little more Exorcist 3-ish. Um, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I wanted to speak a little bit to Matthew's point on the, the sort of secular versus religious thing. And I, I think that one thing that this movie does, and or at least uh, depicts, is piety. And I think Hollywood's always had a problem with pious characters, because they come across as insane or cold. Uh, like Darren Aronofsky's... Uh, I can't say his name. Darren Aronofsky's Noah, I think is the ultimate movie on piety. And I know people have a lot of problem with the big action scenes and stuff like that, but taken as a character, Noah is incredibly pious. He will do whatever is asked of him, no matter how cold-blooded it seems. And that is that was a huge staple of ancient mythology. It's just that people just accepted that when they were given an order from above, you did it, which is why Abraham was willing to kill his son, like without question. Um, and I think Hollywood's always had an issue with that. And, and people have had an issue with that, which they should, because it seems like, you know, you're just following orders and doing whatever you're told. But at the same time, that was a, a highly valued trait, you know, at, at one time. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it can be seen either ways in, in religion, piety is valued, uh, to a certain extent because you don't necessarily, you don't under, you're not meant to understand the purpose, right? Somebody that God is giving you an order from above. You may think it's immoral, but you, uh, you can't see in, in the same way that that entity can see things. Like who are you to question God type thing? That's, that's right. Right. But I mean, you, you can reference Cain and Abel as well in this movie. There's lots there are plenty of biblical references throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, I still remember kind of processing this film um, in 2001 when it came out. Um, and, and I remember the, the, the headline that I came up for the interview was uh, Axes of Evil, playing on Axes of Evil, which was David Frum's famous line as advisor to George W. Bush. I didn't think things could get worse in terms of American politics. Um, and and uh, Bill Paxton and I discussed that briefly, too. Um, you know, and I think that's really interesting because I, I really, uh, of course, films change as we watch them in different eras. And watching this now when we basically have, you know, Satan in the White House for the last few years, backed up by people who think they're, they've got God on their side, um, is just so weird. It's so weird. We've got you know thousands of children yanked from their parents at the border and put in cages, and these guys are doing it in the name of God. Um, I, I find frailty an entirely different experience watching it, and I, I just find that, that I think that's really really interesting. Um, I, I I mean I'm a deeply political person and politically sensitive, but I I thought about that as I watched it again recently. There's actually a famous case. You guys might remember the actual name of the victims, but it's a true story. It was one of the sons was kidnapped, held hostage for like 17 years, and whoever his um, whoever whoever kidnapped the kid and held him hostage, he was he he basically brainwashed him to believing that he was now his, his dad. And then later in life, when he got older, he kidnapped a younger kid, and he didn't want to see that younger kid go through the exact same thing that he went through. So he ran away with the younger kid, which ended up at a police station, and finally they caught. The, these these adults that would go around abducting children but anyways this guy had a brother in real life who clearly didn't get kidnapped and he when he was older he ended up being a serial killer so the guy who didn't get kidnapped ended up being a serial killer and the guy who got kidnapped held hostage and abused for like i don't know like 15 years ended up being a hero do you know the story no but it's it's 
it's a great name famous famous story uh one of the kids i think he ended up in on his photo ended up on the milk curtain like one of those famous missing kids and when i was watching this movie i kind of thought of that story in 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 the sense that you know how one of them ends up being a serial killer the other one kind of ends up being the hero the big thing i wonder in frailty is would fenton have ended up as a serial killer had any had this all not happened had his dad never become, you know, an agent of God, you know, and killing, destroying demons, would Fenton have grown up to be a quote unquote demon? Was he just always going to be an evil person or did that was this event, were these events the catalyst for him becoming that person or that demon? I think he would have it in him, but I think the events and the trauma and everything that happened to him as a kid is what eventually made it, made it come out. I'm watching this from the, the, the you know, like the I'm I'm looking for hints in the character. You know, would this character have have been evil, or did this actually just create the evil inside them? Was it a, a sort of a self fulfilling prophecy that when the angel said that he's gonna, he's a demon, you know, was Bill Paxton's refusal to believe that actually what led to the creation of this demon? <laughs> I I think you're applying a kind of secularist logic to a film that that is. In, in a sense, anti-secular. It's, 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 the film is reaffirming faith and saying there, there are innate uh, demonic, demonic and angelic characteristics of human beings, right? So the, the, the film is, is, is arguing for a kind of divine, um, holy or unholy intervention, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of arguing against that, that oh, gee, would, would somebody be a serial killer if, if they hadn't seen their father axe murder a few people, right? So I think, I think that's kind of, the, that's kind of the, 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 um, the, the divide line I'm kind of looking, I'm looking at, at these films, right? Which I think is just really, really interesting. I actually totally agree, yeah. We should go to break, and we should, uh, we should get to the five questions. Yeah, let's wrap this up, and uh, we'll play you another clip from Frailty. The end of the world is coming. It's near. The angel showed me. There are demons among us. The devil has released them for the final battle. It's being fought right now. But nobody knows it except us and others like us. I'm scared, Dad. There's nothing to be afraid of, Tiger. We've been chosen by God. He will protect us. He's given us special jobs to do. We don't fear these demons. We destroy them. We, we pick them up one by one and we pitch them out of this world. That's God's purpose for us. The angel called us God's hands. So we're like superheroes? That's right. We're a family of superheroes are going to help save the world. But Dad, that doesn't make any sense. I know it sounds that way, son, but it's the truth. So... What are our superpowers? Well, we can see the demons while other people can't. And the angel told me that God would be sending us three weapons to destroy them with. Magical weapons? I imagine so. When do we get them? I don't know. The angel just said soon. That's all I was told, except that we're not supposed to tell anybody about any of this. Absolutely no one. If we do, we put them and ourselves in danger. 
All right, that was another clip from Frailty. And we are back. We have reached that portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. Uh, and of course, we always like to start things off positive. So, Matthew, what was your favorite scene from Frailty? Ooh, what was my favorite scene? Um, I, I think probably my favorite scene is is the big reveal at the end. Um, I think I think that was really scary and a good twist. And when I first saw this film, I did not see it coming. So I think that's probably my favorite scene. Yeah. Now, do you, now which reveal specifically are you talking about? Because there are a lot of them at the end there with Powers Booth being the murderer, which I guess they all come together all at once. So maybe that's why that scene is so great. There's so many reveals all in one scene. Yeah, I guess probably probably an over reveal. I think just when you realize when we realize that in fact he's not crazy, right? Mm-hmm. He's, not, he's not crazy. He's he he is actually um taking out people who who have done really evil things. So that that I like that twist a lot. And I and I thought that that was very clever and as I as I've discussed already, I thought it was an interesting play on all these different ideas I'd seen in different in various different horror movies, so I thought it was kind of a clever, clever twist. And um, you know, now it's the film is you know it's almost twenty years old, so it's it's uh, maybe not as we've all seen it a few times on this podcast, so um, maybe it's not as shocking as it was. But I remember when I first saw it at a press screening, and I was I was really pleasantly surprised by it, and and what well, pleasantly. Uh, I don't know if that's the word, but I, I was uh, pleasantly horrified by the whole thing. Yeah, and I think it's still satisfying to me knowing it's going to happen because I like the Bill Paxton character, and I don't want him to be crazy. And so it is nice when it's revealed. Um, well, I, I still get satisfaction out of that, even knowing that it's coming. I mean, if we're going to, you know, to talk, we talked a little bit, it's hard not to talk about it as an actor because there's only a couple of films he directed, but one of the things that's really interesting about Bill Paxton is that the things that he carries with him is that he's all, even when he's playing kind of an unpleasant character, there's something likable about Bill Paxton. He's, he's a likable kind of, even in Aliens, he's kind of the goofy guy, but he's, he's likable um, and, and funny and kind of charming. There was always a charm to him. I was, you know, sad. I was really saddened when he died so young at 61. I mean, he was a really talented person. Mm-hmm. Even when he's playing sort of a sleazeball like in Nightcrawler, you still can see why people would be drawn to him and why he would be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's great in all of these roles. And Aliens is the coward. He's basically playing the he's the the on screen voice of the audience saying, just game over, game over. Very clever. <laughs> and and I think he's you know, he's even his little tiny role in Terminator, he's great in that. I mean he's he's always has a certain charis, charisma he brings with his role to each role. And I think that but that's clever. Um, and no one mentioned weird science. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know he died the same year as Powers Booth? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. They were apparently friends as well. Yeah. Uh, Rick, on that happy note, uh, what, what is your favorite scene? I mean, look, the best scene is clearly the ending when they reveal the four or five plot twists, even if I'm not a fan of one of the plot twists. But I think my favorite scene is still the sequence, which I talked about earlier on the podcast, which is when they just drive to the Rose Garden because it's the centerpiece of the movie. And there's a lot of clues and hints, and I just like the way it's directed. And it's a very simple scene, but yet it was very complicated in how they actually filmed it. And I don't know. I just really liked... I really... You know, we, we talk so much about Bill Paxton in this film... Can I just, like, say that Matthew McConaughey is really, really, really good in this movie? Like, he's, he's really good in this movie. Yeah, he's great. And so is Paris Booth. No, great cast. 
Oh, I my favorite scene is um, the one where Bill Paxton actually throws Fenton into the cellar. I think that's the most emotional scene in the movie. It's the saddest scene. It's the most horrifying scene to me that a father would do that. Uh, that a father who believes that he's doing the right thing and a son who believes that his father is going insane and is, is going to be tortured by this. I think it's the best acting point for both those uh, both those actors, both Bill Paxson and um, Matt O'Leary, was that his name? That scene hits me really hard. No, that's an amazing scene. I agree. And I kind of think like that that point that's that is the epitome of their struggle. Um, and the kid just wants to make his dad <laughs> happy. He just doesn't want to be involved in this anymore. Yeah, very powerful scene. All right. So um, that being said, if there was one thing that you could change about frailty, Matthew, what would it be? Uh, um, I think that uh, the I think I kind of agree with you that the ending um, is perhaps uh, a little bit. Um, it's not subtle, but that, you know, I don't know if I, I would criticize that, um, because it's a horror movie and horror movies tend to be a bit over the top. And so it, it sort of driving its message home, uh, in, in a big way. Um, there isn't a lot that I would change about this. I think it's, I, I remember being quite pleasantly, you know, as I said, quite, uh, effectively surprised by the film. I, I was quite sort of, uh, impressed with it and, I thought it had a lot of gusto, and I thought for um, a feature directorial debut, it showed a lot of confidence. It's clear that Paxson had learned by watching a lot of the directors that he worked with, like really good directors. And um, I liked his respect for actors, as we talked about great performances. And and I did also the other thing is you know for me the big litmus test around horror movies is did I see that coming? Because because we know that horror movies, I mean, I te I'm teaching a horror film class right now, Concordia. I mean, horror movies, we talk about this all the time. It's why they're so right for parody, right? It's because they're, they they fall into these tropes and that's what you get, right? Somebody makes a, a slasher film like Halloween that's a big hit and that's all we get for the next 20 years until somebody breaks the cycle with a parody like the Scream movies. So we just get the same thing over and over and over again. So if somebody can come up with a film like this and kudos to the screenwriter, um, and, and, and throw a curveball into it. That to me is, it's a great film. Yeah. I think, I mean, what is it with horrors and comedies? The unexpected is what you want. If you can't do the unexpected, then the movie's not really going to work. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's why, it's why George Clooney took a real risk with up in the air, right? It's why, um, uh, like when a horror movie does this and, and I'm, and I am really surprised, um, uh, then I, I give it. I give it big uh, kudos, you know? Yeah. And I don't know that I would change. Uh, I, I, I like the supernatural elements. I get what Rick's saying and I could go one way or the other. My whole thing was either show me more demons or don't show me anything at all. And then just give me the videotape. But if I had my personal choice, I would show me the one thing I would change is that I would want to see the demon be revealed. And to, to me, that would really send it home. Um, seeing that somebody, you know, once, killed somebody you know slit the throat of the person lying in bed of them that's that's fine that tells me that they're a criminal at least but i really want to see the actual demonic presence um to really sell it for me uh, on this that's that's the one thing that i would have changed that instead of reveals of their past crimes that he would sort of reveal their true forms that kind of thing and that that's what adam was seeing that he was seeing their demonic form um 
come to life. And so, so you kind of want it ramped up more, not toned down. Yes, the ending I would have liked to have seen ramped up more. I could go either way. So either ramped up more or toned down more. But if I have my personal choice, I would like to see it ramped up more. Okay, yeah. but hold on. There's a way to fix this, and this is how I would change the movie. So at the very end, when we get the flashbacks of the crimes that those people committed, like we see the old man who gets the young girl into his car. We see the lady who's lying in bed smoking a cigarette next to the man she just killed and so on and so forth. Remove those flashbacks because if those are actual, according to the movie, fact, that's what happened in the past. So what I would do is kind of like sort of like what Patrick would do where whatever Adam says, like Adam in terms of like Adam, Adam, he's actually, he's actually Adam during like the reveal. He sort of says something that implies that, no, these people are like a murderer, a pedophile, whatever. Like, I don't know how you write into the screenplay, but you do it instead of showing the visuals. And then maybe if you want Patrick, he, you can get his point of view. And as he's looking at the FBI agent, he sees like a demon, right? Because we do get visions throughout the whole entire film. Mostly mm -hmm. we see Bill Paxton's visions. So like that, it still leaves it ambiguous because we as an audience can say, well, he's an unreliable narrator because he's off the rocker, clearly nuts. And so maybe he just thinks he's seen demons, but we don't know. You can have it both ways. And I think it could satisfy everyone because you still will have the, the security camera sort of glitch out when he walks into the police station. So there's enough evidence to imply that, yes, there is a supernatural element at play and they are demons and he is doing God's work. But at the same time, you can look at it and say, well, wait a minute. I still think it was all in his head. So it's just one little change. And it happens within like three or four minutes of the film. Oh. Yeah. And it would, that would change. I think the ambiguity changes the movie a little bit and, you know, which is, is fine. I don't know if they were going for that exactly, but, um, well, obviously they weren't going for it because they didn't make it ambiguous. I, but I can see what you're saying. I don't mind the, the lack of ambiguity, though I could have it, and it would be fine. I think I would fall on the side of this really happened anyway because that's just the way that I see see the movie. I think it's it's so straightforward in its dealings outside of the Adam character's unreliable narration, which is even presented in a fairly reliable way, frankly. Um, they all seem very forthright. But then couldn't you say that this is sort of like an origin story for a superhero? Kind of yeah. like Unbreakable? A little bit, yeah. And the I'm, way I'm, Matthew McConaughey struts out in his sheriff's outfit, he might be a superhero. <laughs> well, I was, sort of, I was sort of surprised that, I mean, I thought that, I think that if it had any more of a following, there would have been sequels, right? Like, it was kind of begging for more more of a follow-up of cheeseball sequels. But, um, I, I mean, I I like it as, as it is. I, I see your points. I think those are all really interesting arguments around the film. Um, and... and and I think that um, this whole debate around can we can are we allowed to have an ambiguous ending, right? Um, it, it it's it's fascinating to look at, and certainly fascinating to look at in in sort of the the history of horror films. I mean, the, the to bring up Hitchcock again, the only reason why um, uh, the Birds was able 1963, the Birds was able to end on such a dark note as it did that clearly. That is clearly suggesting that this isn't over and it's not going to end well, that these people are not really safe, right? Surrounded by birds and they're driving off and they hear on the radio that there have been, this is, this is broken out worldwide, this attack of the birds, um, is simply because he was Alfred Hitchcock. 
And that's the only reason. No director could have gotten away with that. I mean, it's such a, a, a dark and foreboding ending. So these, these uh, ambiguous endings have been resisted by the studios forever. Um, it's precisely because horror is so marginalized and everyone who works in the genre has talked about this from Cronenberg to Clive Barker to, you know, the theorist, Rob, the late great theorist Robin Wood is like, because it's marginalized, you can do things that other genres can't. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit of, it's a bit of a bludgeon, but the, the end, but then so is a lot of religious doctrine. So I guess it, it was sort of being biblical in its own way. The, this is a very, like, this is a movie about clarity. Uh, essentially one character doesn't have it and the other two do, and they're trying to help this guy see it. And I think overall, like ambiguity would sort of ruin that a little bit. I think it's an, it can be an interesting, it would be an interesting different movie if you had that ambiguity at the end. But as they wanted to tell it, I mean, you need Matthew McConaughey's character to strut out like the hero. I think that the fact that he's got a pregnant wife implies that this story can go on. Because um, what does his son grow up to be? Is he just going to be passing along the family axe? And that's just the way that this is going to go. Um, I think there's a lot that they can do there, but I think they wanted it to be very clear. Uh, they were very clear in their message. Uh, all right, so... I think we can all agree that this is a very good movie. Uh, we all like it a lot. But who is the MVP of this movie, Matthew? Um, mm, uh, uh, let's see. Um, well, I think Paxson's character. <laughs> yeah, Paxson's an, an obvious choice for sure. I mean, he... Uh... I mean, he directed it and stars in the movie. It's yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I would like to say Matthew McConaughey is like a, as a runner up because I think he had the star power, even though at the time he wasn't a big star. But I think the movie has found a huge cult following because a lot of people have watched it, A, because they're told Bill Paxton directed this great movie with great twists and B, because Matthew McConaughey stars in the film. But yeah, Bill yeah. Paxton, I mean, it's, just, it, you know, for this is his first movie he directed, right? I think he directed maybe a short film prior but for I, yeah. and I know he's like a big Hollywood actor and he's got a, a, a talented crew and a great cinematographer and editor and producers working with him. But he had eleven million dollars to make this movie, which might seem like a lot of money for us, but really isn't a lot of money when you're making a Hollywood film. And it's his first movie and he did an incredible job. So I would have to give it to Bill Paxton as well. Yeah, it's hard not to. I mean, I think you can point out a lot of different performances. Again, I'll, I'll say that, you know, Matt O'Leary's performance as, as the younger Fenton, I think, is is also key to holding a lot of this, this movie together because the movie does really revolve around him more than it does around Bill Paxton's character. You keep saying his name like I should know who this dude is. I'm just giving him a shout out. I don't know. What is he? He's probably like uh, 30 years old now. I don't know. Maybe he's still acting. <laughs> but maybe he's not. <laughs> Maybe he's listening to this right now, Rick, and he's his <laughs> tears rolling down his cheek and saying, somebody finally got it. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think, obviously, Pat, this is Paxton's show, and I think that he does a, a lot of nice little things that make this movie have the feeling that it sort of has, this sort of overall dread. I like the little touches with, like, the shaft of light going into the barn, or, you know, him working on the car, underneath the car, and this 
otherworldly angel type thing comes down from the oil pan. <laughs> you know, it's just those are bizarre images, and they do make it seem like he's having like he's got a tumor in his brain. It reminded me of that John Travolta movie Phenomenon, where he keeps <laughs> seeing flashes of light, and he's you know he thinks he's just getting smarter, or an alien came around, but really it's just a big tumor in his brain. I mean, he is getting smarter, but. Um, yeah, like Bill Paxton would see, like when he first sees the angel in his room, he just sees this like glint of light steadily grow. And it, I just thought tumor. <laughs> the first time I saw it, like it has to be a tumor. <laughs> you know what's crazy? The screenplay writer, Brent Hanley, has only written one screenplay and it's for this movie. Wow. I'm really, I'm really surprised. I would hope hope that he'd gone on to do more. He, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to count or include a short film, but in terms of like a full length feature film. Yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely surprised. I thought this would have been a good calling card for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least it's, if nothing else, it's a pretty, it's a fairly respected movie. So you'd think that would give you another, another shot, but who knows? Yes. Uh, speaking of, uh, I just quickly want to say, speaking of um, kind of overlooked, strange little horror movies with, evil young people in it um there's this film uh, you may have seen it came out a couple of years ago uh, shot in toronto um and it's it's with peter sarsgaard and it's on uh, prime now it's called the lie but i do recommend people see it it's actually worth seeing it kind of got overlooked i mean it, it played at tiff um but I think it kind of didn't do great at the box office. Um, and there wasn't a lot of noise around it coming out. And now it's on Prime and it's really worth looking at. There's some good twists in it. Okay. The lie. The lie. And it's, it's the reason it ties into this is because it's, it's got like a, a, a kind of evil, uh, a, an evil dot, a teenage daughter in it who's done something horrific and the parents have to grapple with this. And it's very well done. Very well acted. Okay, I'm always a sucker for those kinds of movies, even when they veer off towards the cheesier kind. Um, I think there was one called The Orphan that came out, not to be confused with The Orphanage. I like that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's a that really good movie. That movie's so fun. And we need to talk about Kevin, which is with Tilda oh, yeah. Swinton. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great one. Yes, that's right. The Tilda Swinton movie. Um, all right. So... According to Howard Hawks, or according to legend, Howard Hawks once said that, that the uh, the key to a great movie a great movie is comprised of three great scenes and no bad ones. So, does frailty, Matthew, pass the Howard Hawks test? Oh yeah, it's it's got three great scenes in it for sure, at least, and um, no bad ones. No bad ones. Um, mm, I didn't I didn't find myself uh, you know groaning at any point in the film going god this is just terrible and usually you know in a, in a movie there's one or two sequences you think could be easily be cut um i don't remember having a anything sticking out usually there's a scene in a movie you, you kind of find where you stumble on it and go well, they didn't need that that could be cut out or you know but i didn't i didn't find there were any grown worthy scenes in this in this film what about you rick I mean, yes, it passes the test. I don't think there are any bad scenes, but my God, the poster is ugly. Like, it's like, I mean, 
like when you talk about the marketing for this movie like it made 16 million i think but i don't even like i'm looking at the poster in the dvd box and i don't even know what the movie's about or who stars in a movie I, I there's like it's just bad like whoever designed the poster is yeah no they took matthew mcconaughey's face essentially and then what is like breaking down into a flock of birds or something like they thought crows would be. <laughs> that's his face i believe that's mcconaughey's face that's on the poster and then they've got like barn or i don't know the barn from the, where he finds the axe the axe the axe named otis yeah there's a bunch of birds flying into his brain yeah, yeah I, I, I think that i think something that's really interesting is you know mark marketing of films and uh that and then that's something that's you know bill paxton he wasn't specifically talking about the poster but he was grumbling i do remember he was really grumbling about that he felt that the studio, the distributor wasn't really behind the film properly. This is, a, I mean, this is really a, a whole other fascinating thing to talk about with filmmakers. Like Robert Altman, I was very lucky and got to interview him a few times. And one of the things that he told me was, if I'm ever in a good mood and I want to get out of it, I mean, I just go and look at the trailer that the studio's cut for my latest film. <laughs> he said, they, just, they, they never know what to do with my movies. They, 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 they think in terms of genre, and I'm not doing that. I'm doing something different. So they're trying to come up, trying to make like a, the film look like a romantic comedy. It's not a romantic comedy at all. It's it's actually completely opposite of that. And they're trying to make it look that way. So he said it's just it's irritating. Like so, I think the uh, marketing blunders are a really interesting thing to look at. And I agree, the poster is is not reflective of the film. And people feel burned. If they if they see a trailer and, and they think that they're going to a random comedy, they might have otherwise liked that movie, except they didn't get what they paid for. Yeah, and, that's the problem. Is is how do you market a film and not not have spoilers? Because I mean, obviously, I'm, we're talking not posters but trailers. A, a lot of times, when you see a trailer, you, I mean, I look away when they start rolling the trailers because they're just going to give too much away. Obviously, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Clue did it. They had three different endings or four. So you never knew what ending you were going to get when you went to go see a movie at the movie theater. <laughs> I wasn't interested enough to sit through any of it. <laughs> yeah, I like that movie. I need to that movie. Clue has a lot of fans. Um, I'm not one of them, but I do know a lot of people who really like that. Movie. I love that movie. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. You know, I don't. I don't hate it or anything, but I. I've never understood people's fascination with it. But I have a lot of good friends who love that movie. That's hilarious. <laughs> well i mean okay so speaking of audiences is there an audience for for frailty going forward and kind of what does it look like who is the audience for this and do you think it'll actually find an audience going forward because it wasn't really a huge box office success it wasn't wasn't much of a success at all i think it made like you said around 16 17 million on 11 million budget so it wasn't really inspiring the studio to make another one um do you think people can find this movie? Do you hear people talking about this movie? Do you, do you hear that more people have seen this movie? Is it getting seen? Um, well, I mean, I'm not a film teacher. I would like to know if you would teach this film in film class. Uh, I would definitely recommend it. I would um, show uh, it's, it's obviously really, really, really hard to pick and choose which films you're going to show because there's so many films out there. And if you're teaching a specific genre, and a genre as rich as horror, which has never really gone away, it's not like the musical of the Western, which is a finite, you know, sort of specific period in film history. The horror film has been with us since the beginning and continues, has continued quite consistently and 
I mean, it's it's had dry dry spells, but it's generally been a very um, a remarkably a resilient genre, right? So it's very very hard. What I do with um, I do it. I do. I show the bad seed because so many people have not seen the bad seed. It's actually quite shocking how few people have seen it. And I teach it as a corrective also because all the horror film texts say that Psycho is the first film that put the locus of horror within the family unit. When Bad Seed did it four years earlier, and I think it's interesting also in terms of Freud's influence because one of the characters even boasts of having met Freud. So there's like this really funny Freudian stuff going on in it. Um, I would probably show clips of frailty. I show clips of Rosemary's Baby and The Omen and you know clips of those films. Um, if I were to teach uh, a, like a, a film about the family, or if I were to teach a film about cinema and religion, I would probably show frailty. I would I would, I would show it. I think it's it's worth a screening in class. Absolutely. I think it's funny that you find it surprising a lot of people haven't seen The Bad Seed. It's not an easy movie to find. Like, I, I think I have the DVD. I don't even know if it got released on Blu-ray. I don't think it's on, on, on a streaming service. I mean, it's just so, it's, uh, whenever I show it, um, uh, whenever I screen it in class, uh, a couple of people will approach me at the break uh, after the film is over, and they'll thank me, and they'll say, oh, I, I watch horror movies all the time, and I, I, had heard of this or I never heard of it. And, and they said, you've just introduced me to my new favorite movie. I mean, I, I, people will say, I absolutely love everything about this film. How is it that I didn't know about it? I mean, it's sort of weird. Of course, it was just remade by Rob Lowe a couple of years ago, which is so weird. Say so what um, now? What? Yeah. <laughs> what? He did a remake. Of, he directed a remake of it in which he's the concerned parent, the father. And Patty McCormick, little girl, is now, of course, she's in her 60s. She plays the psychotherapist who's analyzing the family and talking to the daughter who is a killer. So they, it's been remade a couple of times. None of the remakes are very good. The original film is just, it's just so interesting for so many reasons. Right. But anyway, I mean, I, I would, uh, yeah, I would consider showing frailty. Um, I don't show it right. I'm obviously right. I'm teaching a horror film class right now. So I'm kind of eating crow cause I'm not showing it. Um, but that's cause I, I have to choose about, 13 or 14 films and so that's a very very tricky thing to do and it's a survey course and kind of an introduction course so i've got to um you know if i was to teach horror in a certain era i would i would include it or the certain theme of horror and the family unit right which is a very rich rich uh terrain then i would i would definitely include frailty like i think it's worth showing in a classroom and talking about all of the things that are going on in it now you do you think it would connect with a modern audience? And I know that you, you're teaching people who have already an interest in film, so they can watch The Bad Seed, you know, a movie from ni- the 1950s, and uh, and they can really, really admire it. Uh, I think uh, that anybody interested in film can do. Do you think that there is, that, that somebody could walk away from frailty and say, thank you for introducing this movie? You know, I've, I've now found a new favorite horror movie kind of thing. Do you think it still has that ability to connect with modern audiences, audiences or has it's, some of its sensibilities aged? I think it's still, I think it still has a, a lot going for it. Um, uh, I think that the, the division on which I discussed is still very much there. This the secular versus religious. And um, I think that that, that's what the film plays on, and I think it works. It works very, very well, and I, I think that that still would capture people's imagination. I think also um, 
the film has going for it vulnerable children. That's universal. Whenever there are vulnerable children in movies, we, we immediately, uh, it reaches into our hearts. And as we've discussed in this, in this already in this podcast, the performances are really strong of the young people in it. So that still holds up. And I think that uh, the performances remain really strong. So I think, I think it still holds the test of time. I mean, it's a different film watching it now, but I think it still stands the test of time. I have a question. Um, we, we sort of talked about this earlier, but I was I was t- telling you guys that the uh, the DVD that I own, like the quality is really bad. Did you watch it on Amazon or Blu-ray? Like, where did you guys watch it? I watched it on Amazon. I watched it on Amazon. Okay. Yep, Maybe I just have to fix my settings on Amazon or on my screen. But the thing is, is I'm looking online just for images, like stills of the of the movie, and all of the images are really bad. Now, granted, this movie came out in 2001, so maybe the image quality that was being uploaded to the internet back in 2001 wasn't as good. But I can't find any great images of this movie, and even the trailer. And again, the DVD I have, it's just terrible. Um, this is why I don't even know why I own DVDs anymore. Like, I like it's just frustrating because like you have the DVD, and then you have the movie playing on a streaming service like Amazon. And so I can go grab my DVD and try to find a DVD player to watch a damn movie, or I could just like stream it on my computer, which I can also do on my, my smart TV and I get better quality. Yeah. I mean, the problem, the problem with these streaming services is that, um, they, they can just, uh, films are suddenly not available on them anymore and, and they, they film. So that's why I'm not getting rid of any of my DVDs or Blu-rays. What is a little bit, I agree, what is a little bit frustrating is a lot of times DVDs, some DVDs are just, some, just copied the VHS onto a DVD. And the blue, and shelling out for a Blu-ray is pretty frustrating because you look at the Blu-ray and it's just not really spectacular at all. It's just uh, not a redone image. It's just, it's just someone's taken the DVD and slapped it on Blu-ray. So, But I, I am very careful to urge people, um, I know they're kind of bulky, take them out and put them in little, in little uh, envelopes or whatever. But don't get rid of your DVDs or Blu-rays because uh, uh, we just had this problem at Concordia because we're doing everything remotely because of COVID. Um, we had streaming services set up for all of our films for students to look at the films. And one of the films, suddenly, it was Psycho, actually, was no longer uh, just in a few months that the, 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 the Concordia people had lined up the streaming service. The streaming service had removed the film. So um, we, we, these, these uh, copies are not always readily available online i have uh, vhs movies that never got transferred to dvd nor blu-ray so oh. yeah there are quite a few of those out there there's a lot and there's may- a lot like maybe thousands. one day there will be i know there's a lot of movies that people remember that they may never get to see again um, uh, i held on to my betamax for a reason what the <laughs> hell is betamax <laughs> okay <laughs> uh betamax rick is that, uh, I, mean, I know, I know. Betamax these... lost the VHS because VHS uh, started uh, selling porn videos, right? And so the porn <laughs> industry kind of took off, and therefore everyone decided to get a VHS instead of Betamax, even though Betamax was better. I like it on The Simpsons when they go to some video rental, and underneath it says, formerly the Beta Barn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, well, we should probably wrap things up here. Um, Matthew, where can we find you online? Uh, well, <laughs> lots of places I would venture. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I, I active on Facebook, uh, less so on Twitter, but I'm around, I'm around. Um, people want to, people want to find my work. They can just Google me. I'm, I'm, uh, my work is about film is pretty well, 
uh, shared online. All right. And uh, Rick, how about you? Where can people find the podcast? I mean, the podcast you can find over at goombastomp.com. Some people have asked me to put it on Tilt Magazine, and I just don't see a point. I mean, both sites are, are interconnected. It's a sister site. But goombastomp.com, you can find podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, um, Podbean. It, it's everywhere. And um, uh, I'm on Twitter. I think my handle is sorted cinema right now. It's all confusing. Um, but, yeah, um, head over to goombastomp.com to check out. Oh, by the way, all episodes since number 500 have been uploaded to the feed and on the website anything prior to 500 i mean that's a lot of episodes i got to go through i'm going to pick and choose the best i'm going to re-upload them to the feed so i think for example i'm going to be uploading a few of the older shows or episodes starting i think next week so yeah so it's gonna be a lot of fun oh boy I know what i'll be listening to uh, i like those old episodes when i'm not on them i hate listening to the sound of my own voice uh, all right. And, uh, Rick, do you know what we're going to be doing next week? It's your choice. Right. We're going to talk about, uh, my favorite Scream movie, and it's not Scream. It's not Scream 3, because that one's bad. And it's not Scream 4, which I really like, but it's Scream 2. Uh, I do. I, I'm a sucker for Scream 2. All right. We will be back next week. Uh, that's going to be a Halloween episode, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be recorded a day after, but sure. That's true. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I was thinking it was Sunday. Every day's a Halloween episode on the Sword of Cinema <laughs> podcast, Patrick. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, wait a second now. We did His Girl Friday. That's not exactly what I would call a Halloween movie. Um, all right. But well, we'll see you guys next Very week. <laughs> they all seem terrified of marriage, at least in that movie. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You the agent in charge of the case? That's right. What can I do for you? I'm here because I can't live with what I know anymore. Listen, this may sound a little bit crazy, but I know who the God's Hand Killer is. What makes you think that? He hadn't even heard me out yet, and already you doubt me. They were raised to obey their father. Go to see Homer. To love him. To trust him. Night, boys. Sleep tight. Don't let those bed bugs bite. Until... Wake up, I've got something to tell you. Hey, what's wrong? There are demons among us. I can see the demons while other people can. I'm scared, Dad. Nothing that crazy could be real. The angel told me that God would be sending weapons. Maybe you just dreamed it. Maybe you're not right in the head. God will be sending a list of the first seven demons. These are people's names. And they'll look like people. They're not. Dad made up this whole thing. Do you understand? Well, if it has to be done, it has to be done. Is that true? Why would I make it up? It's all a big lie. I don't want to run away. You are hiding something from me. What is it you think I'm hiding? When I lay my hands on them, I'll reveal them for what they truly are. I got a pretty good idea of them bodies are. I'll tell. Craziest thing I've heard in a long time. Check the Rose Garden. I don't believe a word of it. But it's true. Bill Paxton. Those were demons. Why can't you see that? Matthew McConaughey. Tell me the truth. Sometimes truth defies reason. You're crazy! Only demons should fear me. You're not a demon, are you? You're back on Sound and Sight. That was the trailer for Frailty, uh, Bill Paxton's directorial debut from 2001, and I think Al has some words on it.
Yeah. In, <laughs> I, got, I got lots of words for this movie. In 2001, in his directorial debut, Bill Paxson decided that the Bible wasn't boring enough and decided to mix in discarded millennium plot lines to create a story about a serial killer who believes he's hunting demons. So, Simon, why did you make uh, me watch this again? Okay, now this was a formative movie for me, and I, I, I've always really liked this movie. I, I, it's definitely, a, like, prof, like the prophecy, a movie with flaws, and we're gonna, I'm sure from the looks on your faces that we're going to have lots of talk about this movie's flaws. What I like about it is that you know, all, all the movies we're talking about this hour have this idea of a, of a murderous god. I don't know where they'd get that from, um, <laughs> but uh, this is the movie that does it most convincingly, I think, and it uh, it's drenched with atmosphere. It's got... Lots of good scenery chewing, like any movie with Powers Booth in it will. Uh, probably Matthew McConaughey's best performance, besides like Dazed and Confused, maybe. Uh, and I really like the the, the nostalgic slash creepy feel of the of the seven, of the nineteen seventy nine scenes. The child acting is surprisingly good. Uh, I don't know. I, I just generally really like yeah, it. Yeah, all those things are wrong. <laughs> okay, go for it then. Um, it, honestly, it's been a while since I've seen it. Since uh, when I rented it this week, we accidentally got the French version, and I just didn't feel like watching Matthew McConaughey dubbed <laughs> into French. I That's just, entirely fair. Yeah, I, I figured I'd just go with my, my re- somewhat scattered reminiscences of the film. Um, I do remember being uh, excited about it. Um, you know, my ex-husband is a huge fan of this film, a huge Bill Paxton fan, you know, got me to be a big Bill Paxton fan. What? How is that possible? How is someone a Bill Paxton fan? They're out there, man. Really? I'm They're a, I'm out a Bill there. Paxton fan. That's like being like a, like a huge Ernest Borgnine fan. Like it's just like a weird... <laughs> hey, there's really... those two, man. They are, I guess. Are. But... I, I, Marty's a really good movie. Oh, uh, yeah, no, no, it's not I, good movies, but it's like a weird person to latch on to. No, I know a lot of people who are really, really into Bill Paxton. I mean, these are obviously people who grew up with aliens. Aliens and near dark, I and, guess. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I just remember being very kind of underwhelmed, especially with the ending, which not to spoil anything, but there's some twists in there that just kind of ruined the movie for me. <laughs> now, here's the thing: uh, are, are we talking about? Because there's really there's really two twists, and there's there's the dumb there's the dumb twist, which happens maybe ooh seven minutes before the movie ends, and then there's the what I think what I consider to be the actual twist of the movie. The, let's let's call it the yeah, cosmic twist. The 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 cosmic twist, honestly, you know, there's some movies. Actually, I think a lot of movies, you know, when you have options of what, you know, if there, there's a mystery. And once you've solved that mystery, once you've given, you know, when, when you're working with something which could be a metaphor or it could be something else. And when you answer that question, you're it's never going to be as interesting. It's never going to be. It's the ambiguity that could have yeah. made this movie work. <laughs> And that is completely ruined when it's revealed that God is like some sort of murderous handyman who's like, uh, I want you to, I want you, to, I'm gonna give you a pipe and some gloves, and I want you to batter a hooker to death. Like, what the? All right, we're in spoiler territory. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I already spoiled it for you. The movie's boring. There. See, I, I actually do really like the the ending of this film. Now, the the whole aspect of Witch Brother that that's that's a, a totally dumb plot twist. I've, I've never liked it. It's. I mean, I, I get why it's there, but it seems like a dumb device that I wish they'd found another way around. Um, 
but I do like the cosmic twist. I I, I, I like the idea. I, I mean, not really an idea. I mean, it's there in the Old Testament. You can read it. Uh, but I, I like that it, it it's basically a movie that presents a worldview as reality and just and that's its function. I mean, it, it's it uh, it follows it logically to its conclusion, and I and I like that. It's it's a ballsy film. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I I don't know. To me, it was just kind of wish fulfillment for a bunch of you know atheist fifteen year olds. Uh, that's kind of how I felt about it. I just and I can't I can't stand the, the like the period parts like I thought uh, Bill Paxton is not a very good actor I mean he's he's got some cool movies under his belt but he I mean the guy looks like he gets confused by like bumper stickers right and here he is directing a movie and like he's all this religious fanaticism and these weird like period his 70s scenes look like they're in the 50s it's like and, and the crazy it's like, it's like leave it to beaver and mike huckabee's house you know it just it just it's uh, it I like work. that about it though I I, I, I no I don't. No, Maybe no, not. I don't. I don't. I, re- I was really disappointed because when this movie was com- coming out, it was, it had Stephen King, uh, you know, uh, James Cameron, Sam Raimi. All these people were raving about it, and then I watched it, and I, I to suppose be, to my, be fair, two of at least two of those three people are his buddies. So. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, and like it's just really, really not. Wor- and then they got these weird like this like that terrible, terrible angel scene in it with like. The Gabriel, an angel's coming down to give Will Paxton instructions, and the angel appears to be that like the fat burly guy from Black Adder. I think I don't know, blind blessed maybe. It is a dodgy scene. I, well, I mean, obviously the the supposedly the title frailty was a reference to the movie's budget. Yeah, and uh, that's cl- that's pretty clear. Uh, I mean, there's no there's no gore in this movie. It's there's it's uh, basically all all cutaways, which I actually think is 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 interesting. Yeah, I think that's a strength of the film. Actually, um, I like and, to I like to yeah. Um, <laughs> you just really hate no, this no I, I don't i you know i want it was better watching it again was better than when i when i, I when i originally saw it i was really disappointed mm. and i, I think yeah that to do with, i with think my expectations yeah me too but it's still it's still not like it's 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 successes the successes that it, that it does have are, are minor to me i like to watch you know i enjoyed watching it, it, it i was like oh, i could use this as a metaphor for religion like you know some moron has bad dreams and boom there you go a new religion is born but uh it just you know next thing you know you're governing Alaska I don't know it's just it's just yeah. <laughs> I don't know I I think it's it's easily the the most fully realized of the three movies we're talking about this hour oh no no you don't no, think so you no. think that belongs to, oh do, or do you think that belongs I, be, to I think that belongs to prophecy easily that belongs to prophecy <laughs> okay, prophecy uh, yeah I think in yeah. the the ideas department as much as I was underwhelmed by prophecy it, it at least had the guts to kind of go the the whole way, whereas I don't know with frailty. How did frailty not have the guts to go the I, whole way? I, it was just relying too much on these twists and pulling the rug from out from under you. And I yeah, it, it was Derek, uh, frequent guest on 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 the show. Derek Gladue, recurring guest. He has a, he has a, a thing called the movie. He 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 categorizes certain movies as and air quotes here wouldn't it be cool if movies and that's exactly what what this i think falls into it's like a great like wouldn't it be cool if this guy had visions that god told him to kill people and he really was being told to kill people and it's it, okay that's neat and then and then bill paxton gets a hold of it and it's like to be fair I, I i felt the same way about the prophecy but hey that's just me but in the prophecy <laughs> people can smell graveyards whereas in this movie <laughs> nobody's no one's mouth is full of their mother's feces no one's smelling any graveyards no one's loving anyone more than jesus touche you know what i'm saying touche it, it, it's it feels very flat and static also uh bill which is i think some uh bill, bill paxton's um 
you know, freshness to the directorial scene perhaps is to blame for that. And that really sucks a lot of energy out of the movie. It's just very static, very lifeless, uh, not a lot of energy in the, in the film. Well, to me, to be fair, I mean, most of the movie involves Bill Paxton driving his kids around, killing people. Uh, yes. And well, the, but it's killing it. people. That should be more interesting than it is, really. I don't know. I, I've always thought of the film, the film as having this very damp, sort of dead atmosphere, and I've always really liked that. Um, how do we feel about? I mean, I you, you said that my my thinking that the child acting was good was wrong. Is that do you think that's true? Uh, yeah, I don't. I think no, I don't. I don't think they're very good. I think they're better than many child actors, but it's still. This is terrible scene where the kid's running away and uh, he he can't even pretend to run well. It's this weird like he's just throwing his arms up in the air like he's <laughs> hurling confetti at a wedding. I don't know. Uh, and and there's a lot of the, a lot of the lines are there's ADR. There's it's, they're dubbed over and it just I I I didn't think the kids they were okay. I guess I don't know. I don't want to come down too hard on the the poor chaps, but uh, it certainly didn't add to, add to the film in any way. Yeah. Fair enough. I've always thought they were quite good, and I've always really liked this film, and I still do. And I, I rewatched it today, and I and I thought it held up pretty well. And Powers Booth, come on, I like Powers, Powers Booth. Yeah, Powers Booth's okay. I like that Matthew McConaughey is like within ten minutes of this movie, he's not wearing a shirt and drinking a beer. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm surprised we got out of the final act without like a drum circle or something. I and know. I actually really like Matthew McConaughey in this movie. I think he's appropriately sort of eerie. And... I don't think he's any good in the movie, but I do appreciate that he's not like you know, surfing or like, you know, <laughs> screaming at the sunroof of a car while tearing down the highway or something retarded like that. He's, he's just, he's very calm and understated, an understated performance from him. Yeah. Which, which is, is not which really weird. Uh, and that's, then that's something that happens often when, when actors direct is they find, they find uh, out of character roles for people. And that's always nice. Uh, so yeah, I, I come down in favor. You guys come down opposed, which is what pretty much what I figured would happen. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm tired and so weary, but I must go along Till the Lord comes and calls, calls me away, oh yes And the morning's so bright, and the Lamb is the light And the night, night is as black as the sea 